0: I'm Marty moss Welcome to The Connection. Thanks for joining us today. If you look around the world, you can see growing support for authoritarian rule, both at home and abroad, with its emphasis on obedience, conformity, scapegoating, order and control. This year is a test of democratic values, with billions of people around the world voting in elections. We're also witnessing wars and uprisings, insurrections, revolutions, and disinformation campaigns that undermine faith in democratic institutions. So what is the appeal of authoritarianism, especially in the 21st century? And how do authoritarian leaders convince their followers to give up their freedoms? We've asked psychologist Ali Mogadam to join us. He has lived under dictatorship and democracy. He was born in Iran, left when he was a young boy, returned in 1979 thinking that the revolution would bring about democratic reforms. It didn't, and he left a few years later. He's now a professor of psychology at Georgetown University, author of several books, including The Psychology of Revolution, which will be published later this year, another one called Political Plasticity. And one called Threat to Democracy, the Appeal of Authoritarianism in an Age of Uncertainty. And it's a great pre- pleasure, Ali Mogadam, to have you with us today on The Connection. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You're very welcome. As you have said, um, dictatorships, authoritarianism has is, is been around pretty much as long as there have been human beings. Uh, and the democracies are relatively new, relatively fragile. Why, though, do you think we are seeing this growing support for authoritarianism and especially for th- authoritarian leaders today?
1: Well, that's a great question. Unfortunately, it's a timely question because we do indeed see uh, rising support for authoritarian leaders, both in democratic and uh, non-democratic countries, uh, also in Western and non-Western countries. So it is a very timely question. Uh, We have very objective measures from uh, places like Freedom House in the UK, from uh, journalists without borders, uh, telling us that freedom is under threat, that uh, democracies have been in decline, and uh, authoritarian leaders and uh, dictatorships are gaining more influence around the world. And uh, as a psychologist, uh, the main question, really, around which my life revolves is the question of why. Sure. Uh, it's, it's not just a research question for me, it's a practical question because I was forced to leave my country of birth, Iran, uh, because of uh, authoritarianism. So, it's a practical question. Why is it that there is more and more authoritarian uh, influence Why are dictatorships on the rise? And I'll start by just reminding us that um, our psychological characteristics as uh, human beings have evolved mostly in dictatorships. Over the last 10,000 years or so, when we lived in settled communities, uh, we evolved most of the time in dictatorships. Democracies are recent, they are fragile, and most democracies have failed. Uh, It's a fact of life. I begin uh, my book, The Psychology of Democracy, with a quote saying basically that uh, most democracies have committed suicide in Mm. history. And uh, psychologically human beings evolved uh, to live, to survive in dictatorships. So uh, one of the basic facts about us is that uh, our skills, our psychological characteristics for survival are more in tune with dictatorships than democracies. Democracies require hard work. And um, this is the uh, uh sort of trend in history that democracies tend to fail and the question is what will the 21st century bring will it bring more failures for democracies or will we be able to rise up and um, defend our freedoms
0: well let me pick up on on one of the subtitles of, of one of your books the appeal of authoritarianism in an age of uncertainty. And it seems that human beings have always lived with uncertainty. I mean, that's sort of part of the the human condition. Do you think there's something unique about today's uncertainty?
1: Yes, that's a great question. I believe that we are living in an age of acute uncertainty, uncertainty and perceived threat now i am em- emphasizing perceived because for me as a psychologist what is important is how people feel how people see the world and all the measures are telling us that people are are seeing the world as more threatening uh, and of course potential dictators and actual dictators have this instinctive way of communicating with the masses to make them feel more uncertain, to highlight threats. Now, what kinds of threats? Threats from dissimilar others is a good example. Uh, At the moment, we have a lot of media coverage of uh, people moving around the world, including in the southern borders of the United States, the threat or the so-called threat of an invasion from the south. And I'm emphasizing the dissimilarity of those who are coming because uh, for much of the United States history, uh, immigration was from Christian countries, European countries. It was for, for, for people who came here to be more similar. Now we have a situation where the people arriving are not necessarily a higher portion of uh, re- in relation to the total population, but they are more dissimilar. They are of different religions, they are of different ethnicities, different languages, different cultures. That dissimilarity is important because in psychology, one of the basic principles is similarity attraction. We are attracted to others who we see to be more similar to us. And the so-called invasion taking place in Europe, in the United States, is from dissimilar others. And, of course, certain leaders, uh, authoritarian leaders, are highlighting this. Well, let They're me... highlight.
0: Yeah. And let me pick up on a couple of things. And I think it should be said that even when the Irish and the Italians and the Jews came to this country, they might have been the same color and religion, but they were often met with hostility. But I I understand exactly what you're saying. So if, if, if it's about uncertainty and it's about, I guess, fear, how much of authoritarianism do you think is built on anger and resentment?
1: Anger and resentment arise from feelings such as relative deprivation and fear. Uh, First, the potential authoritarian leader or the potential dictator zooms in on making people fearful, making them feel anxious that the world is a threatening place Now, if you look at the speeches of dictators in Iran, in North Korea, uh, authoritarian leaders in the West even, what you'll notice is a tremendous focus on fear and the threat from the outside, how we are under threat from the world. The world is threatening. We have to watch out. Now, this feeling of fear is accompanied with a message. The world is a fearful place. It is a dreadful place. I am the leader who can save you. Only I can lead you out of this. They are trying to attack you. I am standing between them and you. I am the defender. You have to keep me in order to stay safe. That is the message.
0: Well and it sounds and it, yeah and it sounds like the message is that people are willing to give up their freedoms in order to feel safe and protected by this all-powerful leader.
1: They are willing to give certain type give up certain types of freedoms but they think they're going to gain by becoming immersed in the glorious group the group that will be victorious Uh, if you go back to the classic dictators like hitler sure message was the third reich will rise and you will rise as part of the third reich it will rule for a thousand years with you and i am the leader of the third reich so the ordinary person is being sucked into this message that you can be part of this great movement. So in order to be part of that great movement, you have to submerse yourself in the movement and give up certain freedoms, give up that individuality and independence. You have to become part of that obedient mass.
0: The kind of conformity that comes with that, is that a kind of mob either psychology or mob mentality, the power of the group to convince an individual that they need to be part of this group?
1: Yes, absolutely. It is certainly part of a collective mentality, but the key thing here is the authoritarian leader is the one who is shaping the identity of the group and saying that I am the only one who can lead you out of these dangers,
0: and a kind of charismatic—I guess—charismatic in quotations—a kind of—I'm thinking of Hitler, for instance—a kind of charismatic leader who can use language and and their voice in order to galvanize people.
1: Absolutely, uh, Hitler is the classic in terms of. Uh, the powerful speeches he made. Uh, he he was like an actor. He rehearsed again and again, day after day, week after week, and he rehearsed every m- minute movement that he made. Now, there are certain dictators who did not have charisma. For example, uh, Stalin was not particularly charismatic. Mm. He couldn't move crowds, but... He was lethal in that he was highly Machiavellian and willing to kill as soon as he suspected anybody might even hint at any kind of disapproval or disagreement with him. So there is some variation, uh, but for example, um, the modern uh, dictators including Khomeini, who I listened to Hmm. in Iran, they tend to be charismatic. The other, th- the other very important feature...
0: You know what, uh, of- Dr. Mogadam, only because we're up on a break here, and I don't want to interrupt you mid-sentence, let's take that yeah. uh, very short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation. Again, talking with Ali Mogadam, he's a professor of psychology at Georgetown University and has written extensively about dictatorships and democracy. Much more after this very short break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscow, and we're talking about the fact that more countries around the world are moving towards authoritarian rule. We're talking today about uh, what makes authoritarianism so appealing with its emphasis on things like conformity and conspiratorial thinking and fewer freedoms and loyal obedience. And again, uh, Ali Mogadam is our guest. He's a professor of psychology at Georgetown University. Let me just pick up on something and and then I'll I'll give you a chance to answer the question I asked you um, before the break. But you have talked about the difference between a dictatorship and a democracy, which is the ability of citizens to question to criticize their leaders without getting arrested, you know, without getting killed. And I think that's just an important distinction there. But why do you think democracies are in decline? And is it because they have not lived up to their promise of freedoms and opportunity and justice and equality?
1: Yes, I think part of the the fragility of democracy is that it promises freedoms and all kinds of opportunities and doesn't always meet those promises. However, I would add that there's something very uh, special about the time we are in in democracies. Um, I have argued for a greater emphasis on shared characteristics, similarities Uh, the fact that we human beings are much more similar than we are different. Mm. And what I call omniculturalism. Omniculturalism is the way in which we are very much similar to each other, much more so than we are different. And unfortunately, I think one of the uh, weaknesses of current democracies is this exaggeration and fabrication of differences under the banner of multiculturalism, Hmm. uh, I think this is the wrong way to go, and it's actually hurt minorities uh, a lot. Um, So that's, that's another discussion. But I think there are certain weaknesses in the contemporary form of democracy, and one of them is this emphasis on differences, which has led to all kinds of exaggerations and fabrications of differences.
0: Well, and of course, dictators are very good at dividing people and, and turning people against each other.
1: Exactly. That's what they they thrive on. Uh, they thrive on these uh, differences which they exaggerate even more. But let me just get back to this sure. issue of um, communication and dictators. Um One of the interesting things I discovered when I did my research on the personality of authoritarians, potential dictators, and actual dictators, one of the things I discovered is that most of them have an extremely effective communication style that is it is effective with the ordinary person. It is effective with the masses, but it is rejected and it is ineffective with the elites. Huh. And if you look at the educated elites, they typically look at the authoritarian personality and say, this this, this person is dumb, and it's usually a man. He can't even put two sentences together. This is an ad- uneducated person. How can he possibly have any influence? I heard the same argument after the revolution in Iran when Khomeini would make very lengthy speeches and the educated people would say, he can't even put two sentences together. And yet Khomeini was not speaking to them. Remember the authoritarian leader is not speaking to the educated elite. The authoritarian leader dumbs down his language in order to communicate effectively with the masses and, and the masses do not want anything they want that simple communication that's what they want
0: and is it about grievance when speaking to the to the masses so to speak and there's a lot to be to feel aggrieved about but is speaking to to their particular grievances
1: <laughs> absolutely and there's there's two types of grievances that are particularly effective Uh, that they can tap into. One is a set of grievances that relate specifically to the authoritarian personality. The authoritarian personality has been studied by psychologists since the Second World War very intensely. And the authoritarian personality wants the world to be uh, black and white. I'm right, you're wrong that kind of categorical thinking and the rejection of dissimilar others and the rejection of complexities. Now, that's one kind of grievance and the authoritarian personality can tap into the leadership that is authoritarian through that perspective. The other issue is tens of millions of people who feel they are being left behind and that feeling of being left behind is tapped into by the potential or actual dictator. The ability to home in on this feeling, and you can see this in the United States. For example, working class white men who feel they are being left behind, who feel that uh, uppity women and, and African-Americans and all kinds of people are getting a step up at their expense how to tap into that there is that instinctive ability of the authoritarian personality leader to tap into that disgruntlement and to use it
0: let me ask you just one or two more questions and then we're going to have to say goodbye but i'm thinking about the role of of information, disinformation, propaganda and lies. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I feel I forget what the truth is because I feel this fire hose of information coming at me. How important, how critical is that when when understanding an authoritarian either country or government or leader?
1: It's absolutely important and uh, one of the challenges of democratic governments is to get a handle on this problem. Uh, We cannot go on with a situation where uh, massive misinformation is being used by dictators abroad, by authoritarian movements internal to the country. We have to get a handle on this and we have to become much more effective at screening and we have to get help from the major uh, companies, uh, the Hmm. artificial intelligence companies. And I'm hopeful about this because in the end, it's true that both dictatorships and democracies uh, use artificial intelligence and the new technologies. But in the end, it's going to be much more beneficial for these companies to collaborate to support democracy
0: final question and, and what i hear you saying is that um for most of human history we've lived under dictatorships and it satisfies a certain part i guess of human nature so so democracy takes effort and work and and spending time um uh you know dealing with with real issues and and making sure that democracy lives up to its ideals do you think we're we're capable of doing that?
1: I'm sure we're capable of doing it, especially through education, especially through programs like yours, where you are trying to uh, critically assess and examine the situation in the world. We are capable of doing it, but it takes hard work and effort. Democracy does not come naturally and it does not come easily. And we need to work collectively to make sure democracy is the winner at the end of the 21st century.
0: Just one more quick follow up here. Do you worry about America and our democracy? Uh,
1: Of course, I worry about America because America leads the world in democracy, as in so many other areas. If democracy fails in America, then it is a very difficult time for the rest of the world to uh, keep democracy alive. So democracy must win in America.
0: Well, we have to leave it there. Um, Professor Ali Mogadam, thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: You're very welcome. And he's a professor of psychology at Georgetown University, author of Political Plasticity The Future of Democracy and Dictatorship, and a forthcoming book titled The Psychology of Revolution. Coming up, authoritarianism and parenting. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. And you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. As I just said, we've been talking about the growing appeal of authoritarian leaders in this country and around the world. And that got us thinking about parents and parenting styles, whether authoritarianism in the home creates an acceptance of authoritarianism when it comes to political leadership and governments. We're also curious about how to raise confident children who can think for themselves, feel safe and secure, care about others, and navigate the complexities and challenges of life. There are a number of styles of parenting, generally speaking, authoritarian, authoritative, permissive and neglectful. Joining us now is Nancy Darling. She's a developmental psychologist and professor of psychology at Oberlin College. She is editor-in-chief of the Journal of Adolescence and Nancy Darling nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thank you so much. Well we were talking about governments and elections and Hitler people like that We wanted to have you join us so that we can kind of segue from politics to parenting. Is there any evidence? I know it might be a little bit of a heavy lift here, but is there any evidence that authoritarian parents create people who welcome authoritarian governments and leaders?
2: I have never read evidence like that, but that's actually one of the places reasons we started studying parenting style is after World War two, when we looked at the Holocaust and people started to wonder, how could good people do such horrible things and follow authoritative authoritarian leaders? Um, they said, what came from the family? And so they really started looking at authoritarian parenting and also what they called democratic parenting. Um, but So that's where it started, wow. but they, people have not really followed it up because there was not good evidence that that's where it went
0: is that because people didn't follow it up or we just we we just don't know the
2: answer to that that what happens with parent, with children who grow up with families who are very authoritarian and so when we talk about authoritarian we mean they're looking for strict obedience right. the kids tend to look towards others but they don't tend to necessarily look towards their parents so Kids from authoritarian families will tend, as you know, as uh, young adults, will tend to look to their peers. But who their peers are will really depend on what is important to them and where they follow. So there's not a lot of evidence that um, the way you're raised uh, determines your politics in that, in that way.
0: Because there are just so many other influences on on a child or even a grown-up.
2: Life is very complicated. It and- is <laughs> yes. Parenting <laughs> is complicated enough, but parent- but um, there are so many influences on kids, and um, kids from authoritative families, which at the t- right after World War II they called democratic, but that sort of implied that parents and kids were equal. But they changed those words to authoritative, and authoritative means that they are. Um, The parents are in control, they're the parents, because they are more knowledgeable. It's their job to be um, in control. Um, And that we do know that kids from authoritative families tend to look toward adults and parents um, in order to, when they've got a moral decision to make, and they will tend to look towards, um, look at their parents' uh, expertise kids from other types of families will tend to look more towards their, their peers about moral issues. That's interesting.
0: Well, let's flesh out authoritative parenting then, um, setting rules and expectations. Uh, I, I'm assuming being sort of child-centered, but not being bossed around by, by one's children. Help us understand it's authoritative fu- parenting.
2: It's a funny word, authoritative. It is. It is. Means it is um, authoritarian, we know what that is. It's like mm-hmm. controlling through power. But authoritative means mostly that the kid acknowledges that the parent is setting rules because they love them, they're trying to do their best for them, and that there are logical reasons, rational reasons for them to set rules. And so authoritative parents have two really, three really important qualities. One is they're warm, they're loving, they're accepting their kids. And that we know is one of the, if there's one thing you can do for your kids is be crazy about them and Hmm. just love them. Hmm. And authoritative parents do that. Authoritative parents also do the second important thing for kids is that they provide structure and they provide rules. Um, so they set sort of parameters. So if you think about, be, you know, loving your kid and then setting rules for them, that's sort of the balance between the child needs to change their behavior to fit well with other people and to be kind to others and to be respectful of others. But the 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 warmth and the support part is. The parent needs to recognize that the child, that this child is unique and they need to change the rules when the kid is two or they're five or they're 12. They need different things and the parent needs to change too. So it's really that balance. It's interesting. And
0: then, no, I'm sorry. Now go ahead. Go ahead.
2: The third part that is less recognized, but equally important, and we've been looking at it since the fifties is autonomy granting is the idea that authoritative parents will set rules they follow through on, but they don't set rules about everything. So they set rules about important stuff, and they follow through on those important rules, and they give reasons for those important rules. But if it's something that, you know, it's like, oh, you want to listen to this kind of music or that kind of music, that's a matter of taste, and they probably don't set rules about that. Authoritarian parents Tend to set a lot more rules, so we think of them as strict, but they don't tend to follow up because hmm. no parent can follow up on all the rules if you set too many.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just impossible. I'm thinking. Impossible. Too, I'm thinking too about authoritarian parents. Is it a kind of you know my way or the highway approach
2: to child child rearing? It's very much of um, one of the other differences I think between authoritarian and authoritative parents is that authoritarian parents want you to do what they say, and they want you to believe or think what they say. Hmm. An authoritative parent will say, you know, I know you don't agree with me, but those are the rules. I want you to do it. Disagree with me. That's fine. In other words, they're respecting the child's autonomy, but they're still expecting them to do what they want. But they, the kids argue. That's OK. They'll talk about that. That's a great way to explain what you think is argue with your child. Indeed. We're almost up in a break
0: here, but let me just squeeze in a quick question. But when when parents are under stress, do they
2: tend to be more
0: authoritarian than authoritative?
2: No, but they do tend to use a lot shorter explanations. Oh. Sometimes you just say, because I said so. But what's important about parenting style, it's what you do in general, not at your worst or your best moment.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, let's take a very short break. We began the show by talking about authoritarianism in governments and in leadership. And we have segued now into a discussion about uh, different kinds of parenting styles. And uh, we are talking with Nancy Darling. She's a developmental psychologist, a professor of psychology at Oberlin College, and she's editor-in-chief of the journal Adolescence. We've been talking about authoritative and authoritarian parents and we're going to take a very short break. We've got a lot to talk about after this break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth,
2: long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moskowain talking with Nancy Darling. And again, she's a developmental psychologist, professor of psychology at Oberlin College and, and uh, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Adolescence. And we are talking about various various parenting styles. Let me just pick up on, on something we were talking about before the break. And I was thinking as being a parent myself, um, that, that oftentimes uh, families and, and parents, it feels like a a ben, hopefully a benign dictatorship. Um, and, and perhaps that's what authoritative parenting is about, which is that there are rules. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not anything and everything goes. But at the same time, um, parents are the boss. And I wonder whether you see, you know, families, parents, individuals struggling with that.
2: Well, I think you're right that being um, one of the things you're doing, your job as a parent is to protect your child And to help raise them to be happy, independent, and well-functioning people in society. Eventually, your kids should grow up, and they should leave the home, and they should get jobs, and they should be happy and fall in love and really like themselves. I mean, that's what you're... (laughs) Just that, right? Just that. That's all we have to do with no training. And sometimes people are very uncomfortable with having that authority and telling their child. And that's why we have this other parenting style, which is sort of more permissive and indulgent. And just as authoritarian parents tend to, one of their goals is to, they want obedience and they want their child to believe what they say. They really are looking, power is actually really important to authoritarian parents and obedience for obedience sake. But people who are permissive parents Sometimes do it just because they're not sure to have a set rules or enforce them kindly. But sometimes they just are uncomfortable with saying, do this. What's interesting about permissive parents is all parents want their kids to behave. I don't know anyone who's happy about having their kids run around the house like lunatics or getting in trouble. They want them to behave. They want them to obey. But they don't always provide clear guidance on how to do that. And the the different parenting styles are just different ways of getting the kids to behave themselves, work well with others, work well with the family. And the and the permissive parents tend to try to say, if you love me, you'll do this. Uh-huh. Or I'm going to explain to you all these reasons and you're going to make the right decision, and if you don't, I'm just going to be sad. That's putting a lot a, on the kids. It is putting a lot on the kids, and it's really, especially very young kids. We were wondering, I mean, there's an argument to be made that, you know, kids are going to rebel if you're too strict. But when all of our studies, and not just our studies, but other studies, is when parents make consistent rules that make sense to the kids, the kids say, I respect that. They may not like it. They will definitely sometimes not like it, but they will respect that. We once interviewed 120 uh, adolescents, and we asked them questions like, you know, what time do your parents expect you to come home Friday night? And some of them said Sunday. Sunday. Oh, my God. Yeah, Sunday. (laughs) And we asked them, should your parents set rules? Things like drinking or how you dress or all sorts of things that kids will give you arguments about and may not obey. But they said it's parents' job to set rules. It's their job to tell you not to smoke. And when we asked him, well, why is it that they don't set rules about those things? The kids will say, well, they don't care. And they don't mean they don't care if I drink. They mean they don't care about me. Wow. That's powerful. That most kids see parents setting rules, reasonable rules that they explain, especially if they're authoritative and they know their parents love them. They're doing their best is they see rules as an extension of the parent caring about them. And parents who don't set rules, especially uninvolved or neglectful parents, they they just see it's like they don't care enough to try. Um, kids who have permissive parents, they say, I know my parents love me, but they're not doing the job. Hmm. And, and, the, and the kids know that, which is absolutely fascinating. What about empty threats? What's the
0: message of an empty <laughs> threat? And, you know... I've, I've leveled empty threats. Yeah, we've all it. done that. But, but if it's a consistent kind of thing, what is the message that the child
2: gets? If you make an empty threat, so you say this is going to happen and then you don't, it means that you're not willing to follow through. You don't really mean it. And this mm. works the same for dogs, pigeons, and people. <laughs> um, this is what behaviorism is all about. It's like I can obey or not obey and there's absolutely no consequences and so what it tells them is that either the parent is not willing to do it they don't really care about it or i'm in control because if especially if you this is one of the problems if you say i'm going to spank you i'm going to do something i'm going to take away your phone something you're not going to do right right then what happens is you know you call their bluff well what are you going to do next Mm -hmm. you're really out of consequences so It's much, one of the things that kids learn, and this is a a core part of parenting styles, if my parent says that this is a rule, are they going to follow through on it? Are they going to make me do it? If you start when the child is young and they learn that you mean what you say, you don't have to make empty threats because they know that you're going to follow through and it's like, okay... They also do what I think is really important about authoritative parenting, and most of what I've studied, is legitimacy of authority. Meaning? So they say, my parent has a right, you know, this is is a legitimate thing for them to set rules about. It's my, it's, I'm obliged to obey because it is legitimate. They're my parents. It's a reasonable thing for them to ask, even though I don't like it. I may well argue with them, but... I'm going to obey them because they're my parents. And kids who believe whose parents are authoritative, kids who believe in general that their parents are legitimate and have a right to set rules and that they're obliged to obey, may argue with their parents. In fact, that's a good sign because it means (laughs) they have a choice. They can obey and be miserable. They never do that. They can argue with their parents because they're hoping to get their parents to set their mind, or they can lie. Those are the three options. And so arguing is a good option because it gives the parent a chance to explain. And in fact, it can be really great, especially for teenagers, but for younger kids too, is I get to express my autonomy by telling you how unhappy I am, but I'll still do what you tell me to. Oh, that's
0: very reassuring. I want to pick up on something you said earlier, and it is true that that uh, being a parent it uh, re- seems to require or seems to have very little training. So where do we learn to be parents? From our own parents. And they learn from mm-hmm. their parents. So how much of these various styles, whether it's authoritarian or authoritative, how much of that is sort of handed down like an heirloom from one generation to the next?
2: We absolutely learn from our parents. I, I sometimes hear my father's voice coming out of my mouth. and um, certainly yes. his words coming out of his mouth. So it's easier if you've had good parenting. Um, there's also some great books. Um, there are some very good books out there um, that talk about good parenting. And the basics of good parenting are pretty simple. They really are love your child unconditionally, um, set some reasonable rules that you follow through on, and recognize that they're different from you. Uh, Don't manipulate them. Lack of emotional manipulation is a really good thing. We're also really influenced by our culture, so some cultures are just much stricter than others. Um, I do work in the U.S., but I do work in Chile, and I do work in the Philippines, and parents, it's one of the things that's really hard about studying is that, for example, parents in the Philippines are much, much stricter and set more rules than kids, uh, than parents in Chile, for example. That's fascinating. Um, The U.S. is in between, but it works the same way. We get exactly the same findings in all three countries.
0: You mentioned these various differences, and I wonder whether gender roles and expectations, you know, whether... Whether well, we do treat I think girls different for, different Definitely. from boys, um. But whether the expectation to follow rules, to, to you know, to be good or to be creative or to be spirited, that 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 sort of falls along some of these gender lines and expectations.
2: Um. Yes, and even in the early sixties, um, Yuri Brafman Brenner did a wonderful study looking at differences between boys and girls, and, he, and it's still true. Um, that girls are expected to follow rules more, boys were allowed more laterality and allowed to be more spirited. But in fact, what and this is true historically too, when you're in a looser, more chaotic environment, or if you're in a stricter environment, girls have much higher expectations of how they're supposed to behave. They are told to conform from all different directions. And so for girls, that recognizing their autonomy and being... Being warm and supporting who they are is more important for them than it is for boys. For boys, because there's many more, they're allowed to get into trouble much more, and there are more opportunities to get for them to get into trouble. Strictness is actually relatively more helpful to boys than it is to girls. Hmm. Not because there's anything inherently different about boys and girls, but because our societal expectations tell everybody tells girls to behave. So they could use a little loosening up, and boys are told that they need that it's okay for them to misbehave, and so having being a little a little strictness, and it's that balance between what you get in the family and what you get outside the family, because there's so many influences on us. I'm also thinking
0: too as we're talking. I mean, there's so much pressure on parents to. To be perfect, you know, to like, to to raise a, a a a child into a a caring and productive adult, you know, requires just extraordinary skills and and patience. But this idea of being a good enough parent, and I think for a lot of people, that just that doesn't feel good enough, if you know what I mean.
2: I think when I interviewed um, parents. What I found is that the parents who seemed like the most loving, the most committed, the best pa- the parents I would want to be, they were the ones who were least confident about themselves. They always said, I could do more. I could do more. And the ones who I'm like were really sort of strict. I'm they were like, I'm perfect. I'm doing all of these things. I don't think that's possible. Pa- we parent for a long time.
1: We, we, we do. parent for
2: a long time. We do. We and are each of our kids if we have more than one are different from each other and we have to adapt. We respond to our ch- our different children differently. So I parent my older and my younger son differently. My mom had five kids. She 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 was a wonderful parent to all of us, but she was a different parent to all of us. Yeah, it is so the same. I, yeah, and I think that um I also think that you really need to um be kind to yourself. Like I said, people, we all have moments that we regret parenting, at least I do. Uh, so you say something or you're, you're not as perfectly supportive. You say something that you wish you could take back. You have You let someone get away with something that they shouldn't have. That's gonna happen. But I think what is important is that the kids know that you love them. I mean, I can't even emphasize how important that love is for them and that you're trying to provide them with a safe, structured environment. Um, I know this is a little age, but if you remember the television show, Barney, and it was sort Indeed, of silly because it was that, <laughs> I love you so much. It was it was so triacly. But the re- it wasn't for adults. It was for three-year-olds because it was consistent. It was unconditional love. And it was like, this is how we behave and we do it the same way every day. And that's very reassuring. It feels safe.
0: Well, and I think Mr. Rogers did that for untold numbers of children.
2: Absolutely. And he kept saying, I love you just for who you are. Right. But he also, we always, and we always talk about that, but what else? He wanted. He talked about kindness. He talked about doing your job well. All of those things are responsiveness, their strictness, they're asking you to change and not do the selfish thing but do the right thing and the kind thing. And that is the other part of authoritativeness, is demanding this, is be your best self. Hmm. So it wasn't unconditional support to be as selfish as you want, it was unconditional support of who you are and you also need to be kind and change your behavior so you can fit in well with others.
0: I mean you're saying, and just to underscore what you're saying, is is to feel loved is to be able to to give love to somebody else.
2: Yes. And you really and and this is I mean it, it is much easier to unconditionally love and be kind to your child if they're relatively well behaved when you're course. doing this. Right. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let me ask you
0: just one quickie question here about setting expectations for children, and again, this, this gets back to parenting, but, you know, as, and as you say, every child is different, so there are going to be different rules and expectations for children, but I just wonder, um, you know, how, how, high do you, how high do you set these expectations?
2: I think there's a really wonderful model of thinking about um, how kids learn, which is they learn between what they can do on their own and what they can do with help. And so your expectations should be um, that they should do the they should do their best, and they should be able to stretch a little bit. But if you set the expectations too high, you're setting them up to fail, and that's and that's not a good thing. And if you set the expectations too low, they're not learning anything new and they're not stretching themselves. And so that happy medium, it's called the zone of proximal development, hmm. is between what they already know how to do and what they can't do without a lot of help. It's sort of, it's it's called scaffolding, where you really, you're helping the child to succeed in doing something they can't do by themselves, but they can learn to do. And by doing it with you, they develop those skills and then they can do them by themselves. And then you can raise the standards a little higher. How did
0: you get interested in in children and parenting?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, I'm the oldest of five kids. Um, (laughs) I uh, was fascinated actually by babies, because babies are wonderful, and I love how they smell, and I like, um, (laughs) I love watching, I love watching uh, parents and kids interact with each other, and then, but I wound up studying adolescents instead of babies, because adolescents knew how to fill out surveys, and that was really helpful to me, (laughs) Um, and I got more and more interested in adolescents because adolescents are wonderful people, because they're becoming who they are,
0: Indeed. Well, Nancy Darling, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today on The Connection. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And again, she's a developmental psychologist, professor of psychology at Oberlin College. She loves adolescence. She is editor-in-chief of the Journal of Adolescence. Well thank you for joining us today on The Connection as well. Every week we explore different aspects of what makes us human and unique. You can email us at the Connection at WHYY.org. You can check out our website, wHy.org slash the Connection. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram and find us on Facebook. Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Bessler produced the show. Al Banks, our engineer today. Again, thanks so much for joining us.